Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. And people were saying, John, you're taking away our tools. And I said, you know, the tools don't work. They're, they're, it's all made up. This is Life of the Law. I'm Michael May. Here's some advice that I hope you're not looking for. If you want to kill someone and get away with it, you might try burning their house down. Not only are fires notoriously deadly, but it's possible to commit the crime and destroy all the evidence at the same time. So it's not surprising that law enforcement began to look for clues in the smoldering remains of homes, patterns that might tip them off to the cause and origin of the fire. These observations were passed on from investigator to investigator, and a consensus emerged. It became the forensic science of fire investigations, and it helped solve crimes. Um, You know, in arson cases, the scientific evidence tends to be quite central to the case. Jennifer Lauren is a law professor at the University of Texas. You know the structure burned down. It's gone. There is a fire. Nobody disputes that. But how did it burn down? Usually nobody's there to, to, to say, right? There usually aren't witnesses to these crimes. And what the scientific evidence permitted the state to do in, in these arson cases is to say that this was no accident. We know that someone came in and intentionally set this house on fire. These scientific techniques were based on years of observations, but they'd never been subjected to the scientific method. And that's turned out to be a problem, a big problem. Let's look closely at one case where investigators relied heavily on scientific evidence. It was a grisly fire in 1986 in Waco, Texas. It left two young boys dead in a backyard shed. Their stepfather, Ed Graff, was charged with setting the fire. Reporter Dave Mann has spent years following this case, as well as several other arson investigations. He's the editor of the Texas Observer. So the prosecution's version is that Ed Graff left work early on August 26, 1986. He picked up his two stepsons from daycare. He told his wife to stay at work late. They got home about 4.40 in the afternoon. Ed Graff rendered the boys unconscious, dragged them from the house to this small wood shed in the backyard, He poured gasoline around near the door, closed the door, locked it, went back to the house. 4.55, flames engulfed the shed, burned in almost nothing in minutes. One of the most damning pieces of evidence in the case was the fact that Ed had taken out insurance policies on the boys about a month before the fire. Ed Graff was a mild-mannered banker, not the first guy you'd peg as a homicidal killer, but prosecutors made him out as a Jekyll and Hyde, a man who was seething inside at his stepsons. He believed they were coming between him and his wife, Claire. So Claire testified at the trial. She said... He never said one time that he was sorry the boys were dead or he was sorry that they were gone. 
He never expressed himself in that manner at all. Later the next day, after the fire, he said, What's changed now since the boys are gone? And I just looked at him with my mouth hanging down, and I said, Everything's changed. And he said, I just thought something like this would bring us closer together. And then prosecutors brought in an expert from the fire marshal's office. He pointed to burn patterns from the shed to prove the prosecution's theory. Alligatoring, charring, which is charring that kind of looks like the scales of an alligator. The investigator said that was the result of an intense gasoline fire. The floor had been completely burned through. And that told him that the fire had been set with gasoline. A V burn pattern. V-shaped pattern that pointed to the origin of the fire. Literally pointed. And finally, the boys had been found dead on their backs. That indicated that the boys were unconscious when the fire had started. And if you're the jury and you're hearing that from this forensic expert, that's pretty convincing. The jury found Ed Graff guilty. He's been in prison for the past 25 years. But his story isn't over yet. To understand why, we have to look at another case from a few years after the Graff fire. This case led to an experiment with wide repercussions for arson investigations. It's known as the Lime Street Fire. In 1990, Gerald Lewis was charged with capital murder for setting a fire in Jacksonville, Florida that killed six people. The victims included his wife and stepchildren. Investigators thought Lewis had set the fire, and they pointed to fire patterns in the house to prove their case. The evidence was very similar to the Graff fire, including deep charring of a hardwood floor and a blaze that burned suspiciously fast. And just like Graff, Gerald Lewis argued that one of his kids had set the fire by accident. The prosecution called national fire expert John Lentini to Florida. Lentini agreed it looked like arson, but he couldn't find any traces of gasoline. So the prosecutors decided to definitively prove their version of events. They took an identical house down the street, filled it with the exact same type of furniture, and they set it on fire. Lentini picks up the story. We just said, let's test the hypothesis that this was a child play fire setting, like the defendant said. So we lit the couch on fire. Fire investigators, when they're testifying in cases, they'll say, fire burns up and out. Well, it does that, but only until it reaches the ceiling. And then it begins to behave entirely differently. You can quickly generate heat release rates uh, on the order of three megawatts. And to put that in context, your average portable space heater is 1.5 kilowatts. So multiply that by 2,000. You can see a video of this online. It's stunning to watch. As soon as the couch is set on fire, a black cloud of hot gas starts to collect at the ceiling. This cloud descends until all at once, everything in the room bursts into flames. This moment is called flashover. I had expected that the fire would take on the order of at least 10 to 15 minutes before it would make the transition to flashover. The room went to flashover somewhere around four minutes. And there was charring in the doorway, there was charring in the hallway, and it looked just like the house where the people died. It went like the defendant said. 
after this test, I, I said to the prosecutor, I said, I can't give that deposition tomorrow. I had been on the verge of making a very serious error by testifying against Gerald Lewis. Uh, what we know now is that if you let it burn for three minutes beyond flashover, it's almost impossible to tell where in the room the fire started. And people were saying, John, you're taking away our tools. And I said, you know, the tools don't work. They're, they're, it's all made up. This is a reality that uh, many fire investigators are still uh, in denial about. This experiment happened more than 20 years ago, and the lessons learned from it are now well established. But it's proven extremely difficult to reopen old arson convictions. Most famously, there's the case of Cameron Todd Willingham. He was convicted in Texas in 1992, after investigators used faulty evidence to conclude he set a fire that killed his children. Over the years, scientists have reviewed that evidence, and they've concluded the fire was probably accidental. But it didn't make a difference. Willingham was executed in 2004. Things have started to change. After an official state investigation of Willingham's case, the Texas Fire Marshal's Office and the Innocence Project of Texas began to work together. They took a fresh look at arson convictions in the state, including the Ed Graff case. Reporter Dave Mann explains. The burn patterns don't tell you anything about how the fire in that shed started. All they tell you is that the wood in that shed was subjected to a very intense fire, and we know that. We also know that gasoline contrary to the testimony at Ed Graff's trial, does not burn through wood floors. In fact, and these experiments have been done, if you light gasoline on fire on a wood floor, it'll leave some surface burning, but it'll never burn through because it's actually the fumes of the gasoline that are burning, and that is actually above the wood floor and will not burn through it. Not only that, but fire experts agree that the door to the shed had to have been open or there wouldn't have been enough air in the shed to have gone to flashover. But the most compelling new evidence came from a fire investigator named Doug Carpenter. My opinion in this case, based on the evidence and analysis, is this was an accidental fire. Carpenter has helped develop a new technique for investigating fires. You might think that when someone dies in a fire, it's usually from the flames themselves. Not true. Most victims die from smoke inhalation. He focused on blood tests taken from the Graf boys. When they died, their blood was saturated with carbon monoxide. Carpenter says that shows the fire could not have happened the way prosecutors said it did. In a hot-burning gasoline fire, the boys would have died from the heat before the carbon monoxide levels in their blood got that high. So that disproves that particular hypothesis. Carpenter says the unusually high carbon monoxide levels in the boys' blood shows that the fire could have only happened in one particular way, the fire would have had to have gone to flashover to create enough carbon monoxide to kill them that quickly. Before flashover, there's enough oxygen in the shed, and the carbon monoxide turns to carbon dioxide, which is harmless. But if the entire shed went to flashover with the boys still alive, then it's just like the gasoline fire. The flames would have killed them before the carbon monoxide. So Carpenter put together an alternative theory, he says the boys must have lit the fire in a small compartment in the shed. We can create flashover conditions in smaller compartments within a room. We can create it in the knee hole of a desk. We can create it under a coffee table. We can create it underneath a sofa. 
I call it a room within a room. Carpenter has seen a case where four people died after a kitchen cabinet caught on fire and went to flashover. The victims weren't hurt by the heat. The fact is, the objects in our home are much more dangerous, toxic, and flammable than fire investigators used to believe. Carpenter says the Graf fire went like this. At 4.40, Graf and the kids arrived home. Graf stayed in the house, and the boys went out to play, just like Graf said they did. The two boys went into the shed and lit a fire. They likely lit it on a shelf or underneath an upholstered chair that was in the shed, any place where there was a small compartment with the ceiling and three sides. Inside that small compartment, the fire went to flash over. It grew big enough that it no longer had enough oxygen to burn efficiently. It started releasing high levels of carbon monoxide into the air at the rate of more than 10,000 parts per million. You can only survive that level of carbon monoxide for a couple minutes. At 4.55, the boys were already unconscious, on their backs. Carpenter testified at a hearing of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. They overturned Ed Graff's conviction. He'll be getting a new trial. But Graff is only one of a small handful of cases across the country getting a new look. Although bad arson science was used in other convictions, possibly hundreds of them. But as University of Texas law professor Jennifer Lauren explains, courts aren't really set up to reevaluate scientific evidence. The question becomes sort of how far does the consensus have to have shifted in order to indicate that you have new evidence of innocence? Um, what if the individual expert who testified at trial maintains their view about the state of the science, even while all the ex other experts in the world um, have changed their mind. Well, would all of those other experts make a difference in the, the, the jury's assessment of the evidence? These are the kinds of sort of reverse engineering of the jury's decision that defendants have to, have to do. Um, it's very, very difficult to prevail. Defendants have to prove that a jury never would have convicted them without the faulty scientific testimony. That's a high hurdle to clear, and that could explain why prosecutors have decided to retry Ed Graff rather than just let him go. On the one hand, the original scientific evidence has been completely discredited, and the defense will bring in a national expert who can talk in detail about carbon monoxide hemoglobin levels and localized flashover, and show the fire was likely an accident. On the other hand, prosecutors still have a grieving mother, convinced her ex-husband is a cold-blooded killer. As with the first trial of Ed Graff, the jury will not be scientific experts themselves. They will ultimately have to decide who to believe. For Life of the Law, I'm Michael May. This episode of Life of the Law was produced by Nancy Mullane, Shannon Heffernan, Julia Barton, Caitlin Prest, and Ashley Ann Craigbaum. Music by Caitlin Prest. Our web editor is Mary Adkins. Financial support comes from the Open Society Foundations, with special thanks to Thomas Hilbink. Fiscal sponsorship provided by Making Contact. For more on this story and others on the law and the legal system, visit our website at lifeofthelaw.org. This program is part of the STEM Story Project, distributed by PRX, and made possible with funds from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation.
Hi, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America.